and I suppose uh, meets your expectations. Uh, okay. Um, huh. mm, couple of things. Um, so uh, first of all, um, when we were sitting down and thinking about what readings we'd put uh, into today's uh, today's session, one thing that I think slipped all of our notice is that today is actually Jyoti Rafule's birth anniversary. So 194th birth anniversary of Fule. So please excuse us for not having any Fule in the readings. Uh, perhaps something that's that's something that we could take up maybe in a subsequent session at a later point in time. Um, yeah, so, um, so, um, well, let's, let's, I think, um, uh, let me give you a sense of how uh, I'd like to kind of uh, walk us through the readings and then we can maybe broaden that into questions at various points in time. Please feel free to put down your questions. Uh, please forgive me if I am not necessarily able to answer them. And there are the other discussants who, um, um, I mean, essentially what we'll try and do is try to come to some understanding, even if one one of us uh, is uh, um, does not have a specific kind of uh, uh, pointed answer, I suppose, to this. Um, so um, the way I wanted to kind of take us through the readings, and we have uh, essentially four readings. Um, what I want to do is I want to um, one of the, the the sort of background context to a lot of what we're going to talk about uh, is mentioned essentially in Arundhati Roy's essay, uh, The Doctor and the Saint, and uh, more specifically in The Annihilation of Caste. Uh, that uh, I think is. Uh, essentially the background of the so, sort of forms a, a, a necessary context. So I do hope uh, some of you have had a chance to take a look at that. Um, uh, specifically because even in Arundhati Roy's essay, you find mention of the fact that this is um, characterized as Ambedkar's utopia. The annihilation of caste is this articulation of a utopian vision by Ambedkar of what um, a casteless society uh, could look like. Um, but what I want to do is, uh, so we're going to kind of at, at various points in time keep uh, turning back to things that are either in uh, Roy's essay or in the, uh, the three core readings. The way I want to do this is that uh, I essentially feel like um, caste because it's another one of those things that is not um, really a standard part of any economics canon. It is not really seen as uh, um, something that uh, finds its uh, finds its uh, space in a mainstream kind of uh, course on economics. Um, so I think let's start with that and with uh, what I put down as our first question, what is caste and more importantly, what to what end can we kind of think of caste in the sense of uh, economic analysis? Mm. 
Um, the first and the first reading is good for this. Essentially, this is the reading by Sukhdev Thorat. Uh, Thorat hap, uh, was a professor at GNU for a very long time. Unfortunately, he was quite senior when I got there, so kind of missed uh, being taught by him. But his writing has been incredibly influential. Um, and so let's start by maybe getting a sense of what caste uh, really is. Mm, on this note, I want to make a make a slight point. There is this uh, there is this slightly unusual point that gets made um, amongst uh, right wing thinkers who essentially say that you know there is no such thing as caste. This word caste itself is not an Indian word, and it's something that essentially the Portuguese used to kind of uh, uh, make sense of um, uh, social practices that were taking place in India. So essentially, this is a kind of uh, kind of uh, weird kind of view from the West. And if you see caste, then essentially you're not really understanding what's going on. Um, and this this uh, this argument, though, not very. Uh, commonly found it is something that uh, uh, people do sort of turn to in times of despair um, what i think is important to point out for this is that uh, essentially what you see uh, in arundhati roy uh, a piece where essentially uh, this notion of caste or what we used to refer to caste um, actually has a, is, its concept is kind of um, articulated uh, in, as she says in Hinduism's founding text, the Varnashrama Dharma, right, or the Chaturvarna, right, where essentially you are basically categorizing people on the basis of the four Varnas, which is the Brahmin, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, Shudras. And then there are those who do not belong to this system. They are just essentially outside of it. Subhuman is the word that she uses um, to describe essentially the brutality of um, what this system essentially encompasses. Um, but in terms of a sharper, more analytical definition of this, uh, I think uh, we can turn to Thorat's paper. And Thorat makes an interesting point here about uh, needing some sort of framework to understand uh, the phenomenon of caste itself. And the, the, the framework that he turns to is the framework of social exclusion and specifically discrimination within that. So essentially, um, in this context of uh, discussing caste, or rather that uh, this, this sort of social hierarchy, what essentially he, the, the claim that he's making is that um, the system that exists basically is one in which um, there is concentration of power at the top. And uh, whereas the masses of people, I mean, uh, really sit at the bottom of this system. And uh, the problem with this essentially is the fact that uh, 
it is uh, individuals who are really prevented from participating in political, economic, and social functioning of society. Um, there is uh, the definition that he uses uh, uh, is from Duvinik, uh, 2005, um, in which he's basically talking about the fact that there's a denial of equal access to opportunities imposed to certain imposed by certain groups in society upon others. So when we talk of this in a framework of social exclusion, I think we do get uh, the basic sense of how, um, well, the enforcement mechanism, if you will, of caste. It is something that is, um, is enforced through uh, certain kinds of social, social relations. Um, so if we were to think of this, if we were to think of a, perhaps a key word to kind of like understand this or a way to kind of expand our understanding of economics to incorporate caste, I think one useful lens that we could use is the term constraint. Constraint is a word that we normally use when we um, talk about, well, in, 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 in orthodox economics and uh, in neoclassical economics, constraint is a word basically used to referred to cons uh, uh, well, scarce resources, right? And very often that is the standard uh, four factors of production, which is land, labor, capital, and enterprise. Um, but if we kind of uh, take on what Thorat is saying, I think there is space for us to see that um, the idea of the constraint can be expanded a little bit. So constraints don't necessarily have to be in the form of uh, resources. They can be also social constraints. And that's how I think uh, that's a useful way of thinking about how to incorporate uh, caste or caste-related considerations or caste-related exclusion into the canon of economics. You basically, so long as you are uh, descriptively, you are able to kind of, uh, um, show the uh, social dynamics that lead to exclusion of certain individuals, you essentially, uh, you can think of this, you can just kind of expand your understanding of constraints in the standard economic sense. And basically you have uh, a set of, you essentially can uh, bring to bear a lot of the e economic analysis that we would otherwise use. An important point that's made also in this first theoretical paper um, is that uh, essentially um, there are two kinds of uh, mm, two dimensions to social exclusion. This is pointed out by Sen and Sen basically makes a distinction uh, between uh, individuals being kept out or access being denied to something and the other uh, is forced inclusion into something where um, a system perhaps where there is there are uh, in, in the words of the text deeply unfavorable terms i think this is another important kind of characterization for us to have in the back of our minds that when we do think of caste we don't necessarily have to think of it in terms of um, simply uh, being kept out of something it also perhaps means um, forced inclusion into something. 
This latter point is quite relevant as we move towards Ambedkar, because when we're thinking about Ambedkar, one of the things that we will see is that uh, Ambedkar has a, has a normative vision for um, uh, society without caste, and therefore it's uh, quite important for us to take that on. Specifically, um, the other important concept for us to uh, take from uh, Thorat's paper is uh, the idea of discrimination. Um, discrimination is characterized in the paper basically as a specific kind of exclusion, right? Um, and uh, essentially it is, discrimination is, when, when we think of the term discrimination, that is perhaps when the, the, the functioning, the full gamut of the functioning of the caste system in India is uh, apparent, where essentially it is uh, upper caste groups who uh, dominate conversations on issues, dominate um, opportunities, um, and uh, who um, also, because of this dominant position, are not just very, but actively kind of uh, um, act towards um, towards uh, minimizing access or opportunities for others who belong to the lower caste groups. <clears throat> this is something that I think, uh, again, one kind of has to um, pay attention to because when we talk of this exclusion and discrimination, we need to kind of have a sense of uh, um, what are the what are the uh, the sites in which we can kind of observe this and where the evidence for this kind of thing might be most apparent, uh, uh, at least for economists. And for uh, for economists, it's it's uh, it can be seen in labor market practices. Um, Thorat has cited a, a couple of papers. I myself have not gone into them, um, um, but. Uh, I think that's one interesting thing that you, you, you see that the social dynamics that play outside of the quote unquote market, right, also seem to factor into the considerations of the market, which is contrary to what uh, we, um, we are otherwise told about the market as being this sort of egalitarian space. And you can uh, largely by American thinkers, but not just exclusively by them. There is this egalitarian space. If you have an idea or you have a, something, it will be valued in the same way. I think what this uh, bringing caste into the picture basically muddies the, uh, muddies the understanding of uh, uh, the market and uh, as a broader point, capitalism as a kind of... Uh, uh, space where this uh, there is a sort of anonymous egalitarianism. You know, it's, it doesn't matter who you are; you would be judged on the strength of your ideas or your. And, and this ties into a conversation that is uh, that is uh, that is quite uh, prominent in discussions of caste in India, which is uh, affirmative, which relate to affirmative action policies such as reservation. Uh, the word merit is often thrown around, 
uh, we will touch upon that at some point. Um, the point that I think we need to have, and this is all, since this is a theoretical paper, this is really background for us. You know, this is the kind of conceptual foundations on which we can maybe stand when we are looking at uh, caste. Um, I think the thing to understand is that just like uh, resource constraints, when uh, you do not have enough land to produce, so you do not have enough, I don't know, um, or capital to produce, there are consequences to that. In a similar kind of way, if we think of uh, caste as a factor that basically constrains individuals, then we must kind of take on the fact that there are economic consequences to caste discrimination. Um, if you've read uh, Arundhati Roy's piece, you know that the, it's not just economic, right? Um, and uh, by mentioning, I think, the economic ones first, I don't mean to kind of suggest that the economic ones, um, economic consequences matter the most. Rather, that I think is a, um, for those of us who are interested primarily in the economic consequences, um, that is a, a starting point. But really, it's not enough of a starting point because the answer is uh, the kind of considerations that we have to factor in are social and are political. So um, as far as economic consequences go, um, exclusion or the consequences of exclusion broadly fit in, um, in a kind of um, framework of um, human development uh, in the sense that even if you take human development as a measure, access to education, access to healthcare and standard of living, exclusion and discrimination basically limit access to each of these things in very specific ways. Um, and we're not necessarily going to get into uh, the finer details of that. In fact, uh, as I've mentioned, this is a theoretical piece. So uh, even Thorat himself doesn't get into uh, too many of the details. One way in which even the orthodox economist can see the effect of exclusion and discrimination playing out is essentially in uh, what manifests in the labor market. Basically, you're, uh, uh, you know, in economics, we have a concept of full employment of resources. And... Uh, um, idealistic as that is, essentially what we see is that there are, uh, uh, when there is discrimination, uh, this full employment of resources cannot be kind of attained. Why? Because essentially there are groups of individuals uh, who are systematically kind of excluded from access to uh, things that would essentially allow them <clears throat> to uh, participate more uh, in a, in a more productive kind of way in the economy. Um, one of the, uh, for me, absolutely terrifying aspects of caste is the, the idea that you are uh, locked into a profession uh, and, uh, and more often than not in extremely demeaning professions uh, for the entirety of your existence not only yours, for the entirety of uh, 
well, your progeny's existence. So to say that the system is oppressive and that uh, is, is, a, is an understatement, really. Uh, but I'm moving away from the theoretical point. Um, in the language of economics, we can basically understand this in terms of market failures. Uh, market failures are essentially uh, an inefficient allocation of resources leading to a situation where essentially firms um, would not be able to produce at the most efficient kind of uh, in the most efficient kind of way. Um, this is again in the context, <clears throat> excuse me, of the labor market. And what you're doing by preventing access is a uh, access to uh, groups of individuals is you're making this uh, free mobility, which is a presumption in the marketplace of labor, land, capital, etc. Caste basically makes this imperfect. So if you presume free mobility, you can see even if we're just taking the orthodox economist understanding of this, most of our basic concepts can be altered in significant ways to basically understand um, how caste uh, functions and essentially what uh, caste does to, amongst other things, the labor market. <clears throat> in this kind of scenario, uh, there are those individuals who have experienced discrimination and exclusion who uh, through uh, a combination of factors in, in, in including a lot of personal sort of strength and like uh, fortitude, I think uh, managed to find themselves in the, the so-called egalitarian job market. And, um, but, uh, but there is still this hangover of kind of constantly being discriminated against. And that's something that does affect, again, if we are thinking narrowly as economists, it does affect performance. It is an impediment on human capital. Um, and it is, I mean, long story short, it is a problem. Uh, so uh, I think that's something that we need to also keep in mind when we are thinking about this. Um, um, as far as uh, the paper basically ends with, I think, uh, two points. Uh, um, I think uh, one thing is the need for some sort of, now, the economists use the word regulation. I don't know if regulation is the right word to use in this case, but there is some sort of intervention that's necessary. And we will be looking at one form of intervention, the one that was in the Live Mint article. Um, the, I think one thing that, um, just to sort of wrap up uh, sort of a basic, basic presentation of this, piece is that I think uh, one of the key things to kind of understand is that this is a, a caste and caste-based discrimination, social exclusion, if you are looking for the uh, economist kind of categorization of this, is something that has shown incredible endurance. There's something that, and this is the point that Arundhati Roy also makes, something that has not gone away despite 
many many kinds of interventions um, um, and i think even in that phrasing to say that it's something that goes away is uh, i think uh, is a sort of abdication of the fact that this is a problem that requires more conscientious and concerted action towards its resolution um at the end of the day the normative vision that uh, thorat is talking about is essentially um enabling equal opportunity remember he is speaking in a relatively narrower context of uh, the job market right um and therefore um we uh, when he's talking of what is the ideal situation equal opportunities what he's saying and he does point to the fact that um, um there are numerous types of interventions that have taken place reservations amongst them but uh, essentially there is a there are dynamics that play um play out that uh, essentially mean that uh, these are systems that also are have imperfections and can be um Mm. uh don't necessarily uh ensure that uh, there is a, there is a, uh enough i suppose um uh, access to um that equal opportunity uh and that is part of i think a political conversation on on these uh on on affirmative action more generally and uh, uh the manner in which it really functions in the indian context um i think one thing that's important to also point out here is um as far as the labor market goes and as far as thorat's considerations on this go he makes an interesting point right towards the end of his piece where he basically talks about um the challenge that uh, mm, that emerges from the shrinking public sector in the public sector um, you have at least in in an idealized vision of the public sector i suppose one could say that uh, policies that were basically uh, decided upon by the state could be implemented fully but uh, as we've seen um from uh, arundhati roy's uh, um peace essentially this is also very very problematic because for example the uh, the indian railways has been a major perpetuator of caste based discrimination essentially holding people to positions that uh, thing essentially basically making people carry human feces and that's essentially something that they were they were asked, they were asked not to do that by the supreme court and nevertheless they continue to oh, there are uh, questions in the so that's by way of uh, by way of the first reading i think that's uh, i think that's what i the, the points that i want to kind of highlight um so how can market failures along illustration so i'm just reading a question that's been put in um the chat um 
okay um so um and maybe uh devanshu and muskan can also sort of chime in anyone else would like to chime in on these how can market failures in terms of inequitable distribution of resources be solved um reservation is helping but what other policies can be adopted uh so i'll maybe talk about the first part of this uh, i mean the first question second question i think we will come to as we move forward in today's discussion mm. well how can it be solved access is seen as one solution now access is a rather ambiguous word and access means uh, potentially could mean different things based on the context based on the specific form that discrimination is taking uh based on the kind of opportunities that are up for grabs right um for example if you talk of specifically you speak of reservation right um there are spaces within which reservation um is discussed in 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 such a way that it it is seen as an extremely bad thing that it uh, impedes this notion of merit so if you've read the arundhati roy piece you would see that essentially when uh, um um when it was proposed that there be reservation of uh, reservation in uh, judges amongst judges in the supreme court that was viewed uh, that was shot down quite aggressively the most aggressive uh, articulations against reservations have consistently been um there should be no reservation policy um in uh, spaces like the iits and the iims and uh, the iims have of course been doing a good job in keeping uh, professors from uh, lower castes out so that is something to be said about them um and and also in civil services i mean this is this is the, these are the spaces where you find the most kind of vociferous uh, uh statement of oh no 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 it is a, it's against this notion of merit but uh, this notion of merit that is kind of articulated is one that really does not account for the privileges that come from belonging to a certain caste and the access that that provides essentially i mean this notion of access um is uh, is see uh, is interpreted in two perspectives one there is the emancipatory idea of access that everyone has access literally everyone and then there is the other idea of access that uh, well access is whoever i want to give access to now this is dominated by groups that have uh power and standing politically socially and economically in the country uh the statistics on who who uh, occupies what position in the hierarchy in, even in the state administrative system is presented in arundhati roy's thing and i don't want to sort of belabor that point too much um devanshu muskan anyone else uh, if you want to chime in here yeah uh, i think the the paper uh, i think the important point 
was it also that that idea i think you already talked about was the social norms thing that even though i think even in the paper it says somewhere that uh, even if there are laws which are quite good like you know they they try to defend and they are anti discrimination but the enforcement is the problem and even in the i think the main article also talks about that so i think another thing could be apart from the interventionist or the regulation part which again even if they are there enforcement would is a problem always in india i think another thing was to change the social norms of how we are looking at these areas like this psychological impact of you know discrimination discrimination and you know just changing this you know norm so i think that's what also talks about the you know annihilation in uh, annihilation of caste like you know it's like changing the idea of the society in terms of looking at a lot looking at these uh, you know uh, uh, social relations so i think uh, that is something you know needs to be i feel could be another way to look at this uh, the, again the intervention the regulations one part but the social changing the social norms how humans look at these Yeah, especially maybe in terms of employment and education could be something which can uh, I don't know so because other countries I mean I can I mean China I know it's a controversy kind of an example but like China did try to fix that in some sense with their feudal system before the when the cultural revolution has a lot of debates but has had some ideas to fix and then try to you know again you can all go back to that whole Chinese discussion but yeah there are ways to maybe change the norms but again I think yeah we could talk more on this but yeah i hear i was worried about discussing caste and you brought the you brought mao into the picture so i am no longer worried <laughs> <laughs> um but i think uh, i think what uh, what devanshu is saying there is a point there and the theme that we basically see recurring in the readings that uh, that we've done is essentially that there is a the manner in which issues of caste discrimination social exclusion are seen they are given a sort of uh, they are not they are not uh, given i suppose uh, the value that they need to be given they are sort of seen as uh, problems that are there but well i mean it's okay if we don't really do anything meaningful about it if you saw the livement piece and we'll get to that in just a moment um the uh, what was hailed as an incredibly incredibly good piece of legislation is prevention of social boycott act um has remained on paper just that an excellent piece of legislation no rules have been notified no norms there are no standard operating procedures god forbid if you want to file a, an fir under this uh, act of law the police really have no idea how to go about doing it it's not that they have no idea it is that they uh, because the rules are not notified they get to claim that um, the rules are not notified we don't know exactly how to proceed with this as you would have seen in the experiences of those individuals in that piece um there is a way in which perseverance and sort of like bearing incredible personal costs is a kind of like the personal story of of how you deal with uh, caste discrimination and exclusion in india so that's something that uh, that's something to take note of as well um okay um 
if there are no more questions then let's move on to the next piece so if the first piece was really about expanding the notion of like constraints and bringing in the fact that the social uh determinants of uh, of um, yeah, of groups within the market uh, within an economy matters and the kind of interrelationships between them matters then i think the second piece which was basically about ambedkar and the economics uh, economics crucial for social justice i think gives us some space to now um kind of reframe the way we perhaps look at problems we have seen that even the standard concepts like market failure um human development uh labor markets and even economic growth because all of these things have linkages with each other uh can be modified to account for caste and discriminatory uh, considerations in the next piece i think the important thing for me is this i think it starts off really uh really well. okay ambedkar's idea of monetaries this is exactly what they were sure guys were talking about before most of you guys joined it so we will talk about that um um so uh, just by some by way of summary i think for me the one of the important points um in this next piece is the idea that marx uh, ambedkar is a is a figure who is an analogous to marx in the sense that um there were two things running in his Uh, uh running uh, in his thinking one was a need to be analytical and need to kind of adopt a very very rigorous mode of analysis to basically understand the determinants and the uh, conditions which uh, uh, determinants of caste discrimination and the conditions which it which it perpetuated um Arundhati Roy has an incredible incredibly nice characterization of this essentially uh when she talks of caste discrimination she basically says that it's not really restricted to uh certain specific castes but basically there are tendencies um uh let's say if you're saying the uh the upper castes are the most sort of uh discriminatory the tendency because it is part of the a broader system uh, broader like religious conception of how the world ought to work there are tendencies that are sort of embedded at every stage along the way so discrimination uh, exists between brahmins and kshatriyas kshatriyas and vaishyas vaishyas and so it's it's all of that right basically everyone below you is to be discriminated against in some way or another um now the point here i think is that if we are to take some sort of uh, normative point from um, ambedkar and while we can take perhaps analytical points and certainly the question about money circulation is a good one so we will touch upon that i think the normative uh, if if we read this piece in conjunction with what we saw in uh, thorat's piece we can see that essentially existing concepts in economics can be modified to account for caste and caste discrimination in a certain kind of way 
But what we would need at some point is some sort of normative conception of, uh, of how we can even go about this project. What is the sort of motive to kind of I think that uh, is something that comes from a, 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 a historical understanding of discrimination and the fact that it has been a feature of um, society here for a very long time. Um, and as Marx had a kind of, uh, Marx's objective was to essentially construct an analysis that uh, um, essentially made sense of the conditions of the working class. Ambedkar's is a figure who did uh, so for the condition of Dalits in Indian society. And this is something that's very, very important because um, when we are necessarily thinking through uh, a lens of uh, egalitarianism, um, we often uh, do not take into account our own subjective positions within a structure and this is a this is a point that we have actually brought up in past reading group discussions this idea of positionality um so who am i what is my sort of uh, social baggage if i am uh, uh, put it simply historically have i been the oppressor or have i been the oppressed and that's something to sort of uh, account for uh, and it's necessary uh, and I think um, uh, as this piece suggests basically if if we kind of if we bring in our own pos uh, subjective position into uh, the conversation I think then the the kind of analysis or at least the openings that are available to us in terms of our analytical framework broaden and scope kind of scope for analysis kind of broadens a little bit um i'm not just yet going to touch upon the money point um i think uh, uh, for me i think uh, one of the other interesting points is to basically um uh, think about land holdings property is a huge 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 issue in in, in india and uh, part of the reason why it has uh, why it is an it is an important site to study is because essentially under, um, well, except in isolated pockets where there are, uh, where there is the existence of like uh, matriarchal norms in society, um, we do have a notion of property uh, as something that basically goes on from father to son, right? Um, and in its most aggressive form, this has been something that has uh, excluded women. And uh, uh, as, as Ambedkar is also pointing out, it is something that has ensured that even if you did own land as a Dalit, you did so in a way that your land holdings were never very large. It was mostly subsistence agriculture that you could basically engage in. And he has this interesting notion of, I mean, this is an interesting way he's considering kind of efficiency and economies of scale here. The idea that small land holdings basically don't really work. And perhaps what might be better for uh, 
for uh, Dalit communities is to have some sort of a larger land holding, perhaps a cooperative model that was essentially uh, because essentially the benefits to like uh, benefits from production essentially come in at certain uh, level of scale. So I think that's something that's also very interesting. Uh, and again, what's important to point out is that this kind of reasoning, this kind of uh, resolution of a problem of land holding, which prima facie seems just like a very simple resource allocation problem. Um, this is, it, it really isn't. It really comes out of a consideration of uh, discrimination. So if you don't start by uh, see uh, start start with the objective of kind to kind uh, kind of make sense of discrimination you kind of you're, you're going to miss it all across the board and there is a way in which you would slip into perhaps a sort of status quoist um position where just because everything seems to be fine for you it seems to be fine um the point i think uh the point I think that this fundamentally uh, links to is a, is a point of governance as well. When I say governance, I essentially mean the, way in the, the relationship between center and states. The point that's made out here is this point about uh, centralization versus decentralization. Um, excessive centralization in Ambedkar's view is going to be a threat because well you never know who's going to be sitting on the chair in delhi right and if their tendencies are one that uh, um that are discriminatory in nature and there aren't enough checks and balances within the system um then essentially you would have ensured uh, a worsening of caste-based discrimination on the other hand there is also the idea of decentralization. And if you have read uh, Roy's piece, then you would know that this was one of the fundamental lines of tension in the conversation between Gandhi and Ambedkar. It is uh, um, Gandhi's idea of like uh, utopian and utopian decentralization. Somehow, well, we can't say somehow if we've read uh, uh, Roy's piece, but basically it uh, refuses to acknowledge um, the brutalizing effects that uh, caste has on individuals who are subjected to the discrimination. Um, as far as the other, uh, other points in this piece, and I'll just try and quickly wrap up and then get to the question that was asked. Um, is a question of basically uh, public finance and who gets to spend the money. Right? Really, it boils down to that. So, I think uh, here one thing that has one thing that's important is that this kind of tension between centralization and decentralization is going to kind of remain because you do need you do need it to happen. You do need finance to be available, provisions to be made at various levels. Because one part of this problem of access is a problem of uh, resources, right? If uh, if you uh, if you belong to a community that has historically been uh, kept outside of access to economic and 
political and social life, then um, your ability to participate in it is conditioned on having the resources available to, for example, go to a school, to go to a college. Um, the, the statistics that uh, Roy presents in her uh, essay uh, are slightly dated, but disturbing nevertheless. I mean, the, um, the numbers really tell us a picture of how bad it, uh, how bad it is, even if the numbers are limited in a certain kind of way. Um, so uh, as far as points from this piece, I think that's the, this is the thing that I, I would want to say. I think the, the um, for me, the takeaway from this piece is that essentially when you frame your investigation in terms of uh, trying to kind of uh, um, understand or frame it in terms of the interests of uh, 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 Dalits who have faced uh, social exclusion and discrimination, I think that allows you to sort of mobilize your concepts. And so if the lesson that one, I think, can take away from this is that having an objective um, does have a bearing on the kind of economic analysis that you would be capable of doing. Um, Devanshu and uh, uh, Muskan, uh, if you want to chime in, and then we could maybe uh, touch upon uh, Sampurna's question and uh, Shrishti's question as well. Uh, Muskan, do you want to say anything? Or... Uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted to say that I, I read it in the said that if the caste is not it might become a world problem. Because the people as we move from one country to another, people carry their social identity as well. And there have been instances like um, the article where there have been instances of um, discrimination by uh, by an upper caste um, upper caste Hindu engineer um, on a Dalit engineer in Silicon Valley. So, like this problem can spread like a plague if you know not uh, stopped or like if not attended to. That's an, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think even in uh, the UK there has been this lobbying for uh, recognition of caste-based discrimination, um, which has been sort of blocked to an extent by uh, upper caste kind of groups that uh, lobbying to kind of ensure that this is not recognized. To, to, so to sort of say that this thing really doesn't feature much in perhaps the conversations, I think uh, um, kind of, uh, I think one needs to take keener notice of the fact that there is a kind of politics being uh, played at various levels of uh, systems. Yes, and I mean, uh, this, uh, um, Devanshu, is there anything that you want to kind of add to this? Maybe you could just... Um, just had a quick bit. So, I mean, a lot of people ask, like, I think I was, when I was trying to research on this topic, like, a lot of people ask, like, what is really the difference between, you know, uh, social justice for caste and also, like, poor? 
and i mm-hmm. think it's relevant to our current discourse also where a lot of i think it's focusing towards poor and your income and your you know status on that and getting away from caste because the you know the, the argument it goes again like you know, it's been 50 years 70 years nothing mm-hmm. has been done so we should just focus on the income level so mm-hmm. i think i think it's more like you know we can maybe identify some of the differences some of the main highlights like what is the difference between um, you know these two arguments and uh, yeah i think we already touched upon some of them but uh, i think it's important to to see like what is like there yeah um sure i suppose that's something that we could get into um let's uh... i could come in uh, and like yeah. um yeah um what the one who was mentioning like about um or the fairness of like being poor or like being like in like the meritocracy or all those sort of ideas of uh, how uh, like conservation should be provided or sort of uh, um how to how, how to tackle the caste discrimination or kind of uh, social issues or uh, the idea here is like um while bringing in uh, the economic reservation or i would like to frame it like call it as um, upper caste reservation um here what's happening is that uh, this is a continuation of a reservation which previously existed uh, reservation is not something what a constitution bring to india or at least i could understand from reading a history of kerala kerala's caste i could understand is that um, the job uh, job at least in the government uh, sector was exclusively uh, like reserved for certain caste groups uh, the so called upper caste uh, Uh, dominance was like not dominance but completely those um, government jobs were only provided to the upper caste people so the reservation is not something what uh, what happened in uh, like this uh, uh, like 50 years or 70 years but this was something was happening for thousands of years in uh, where, while the caste was practiced so when while claiming that 50 years can um, make this thing in in an um, reverse uh, like can reverse the injustice is uh, completely insane yeah that's my point um okay so uh, i think uh, that is, that is a point that uh, does find its voice uh, quite often in like dominant discussions of this as well i think uh, i think uh, i think for that one has to sort of be a little uh, keenly uh, keenly attuned to the notion of like affirmative action and i kind of the space of this within the constitution frame um this is uh, which is which is perhaps a, a slight deviation from this conversation but uh, i think briefly i suppose i could say that um, this notion of uh, um this notion of affirmative action um is one in which you are trying to essentially account for or acknowledge uh in a in a tangible sort of way that there has been a history of a historical tendency of uh what is that uh creating constraints creating uh, uh ensuring violence or blocking access to certain groups in certain communities and if the thing is to be put down i suppose on uh, i suppose it's it's going to be put down in some way a uh, reservation is one of those ideas um to the extent that it uh, it uh, it uh, whether whether or not it kind of solves the problem 
I think it is an important form of recognition because solving the problem is one that in various ways um, people have been trying to do since uh, well, prior to the formation of this country. So uh, uh, there are, I suppose, I suppose one thing that should be said here is that there, it is not, there's going to be no one uh, one-pointed solution to this. It's not that I will introduce this and then suddenly everything goes away. The, uh, um, I think um, if in a certain kind of way, the conversation that we're having here is one that makes us in some sort of way feel a little bit uncomfortable in our own kind of subjective position. I think that's a good thing. I think that's essentially the intent here, that these are conversations at, at, at the end of the day, politically speaking, these are conversations that have, these are voices that have not been allowed to sort of speak historically. And if they are included into the conversation, maybe that makes us uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be there. And I think that's the, that is the point uh, that I think for me that that is an important point. Um, let's just get to Sampurna's question and then Shristi's question. Could you explain Ambedkar's idea about monetary circulation in the economy? Okay, so um, let me start by saying I am not very well acquainted with this. I have, he has this whole dissertation that he's written. I think the LSE dissertation was on this. Um, and I have personally not read it. Um, so I'm kind of relying on two people who have read it and processed it for me. One is, of course, the Tribune piece. And then I think there's another piece by Niranjan Rajataksha in uh, Mint, uh, where he also discusses it. Very simply, um, the concern here, again, is that um, uh, Dalits, due to this sort of historical exclusion and discrimination are less likely uh, than uh, upper caste to basically have uh, a diverse range of asset holdings. Okay, um, That's something that's important to keep in mind. So if you don't have a diverse range of asset holdings, you're largely going to basically have your the, the only quote-unquote uh, asset that you will have will be uh, cash money, right? Um, I say quote unquote because money, uh, to an economist, money is not an asset. Uh, a value does not appreciate, no rate of interest on it. I think the point that Ambedkar was trying to make was basically if you, um, there needs to be some sort of constraint. Uh, we have two systems of, uh, systems of thinking about money supply right one is the present system which we call fiat right which is uh, i mean let me put it very crudely but it's based on the fact that there's a guarantee by the kind of state it, it says on our notes no i promise to pay the bearer of this sum of so and so so and so uh, 10 rupees 100 rupees or whatever um, as opposed to gold standard in which basically the money that is circulating in the economy is uh, backed by gold, which is a which is something that is uh, seen as an asset, 
And Ambedkar's point here is essentially that if you have it tied to gold, essentially you can't mess around with the money supply too much. Because if you want to change the amount of money in circulation, you will have to literally buy more gold. Right? So if you want to increase the money supply, you will have to first buy more gold. Then a fraction of that can be a fraction of that new uh, newly acquired gold can be turned into paper notes because then you can once it goes out into public, it has to be guaranteed by a certain amount of gold. So if there is gold, then you can do it. And his, I think, notion again was basically um, that you know, by changing the money supply, right? Uh, monetary policy specifically. Um, the possibility of inflation is always one that looms large. And if my asset holdings are limited to just the cash I have in my hand, um, inflation is going to basically uh, destroy my purchasing power. Like I said, if I belong to a community that uh, for historical reasons does not have access to a diverse range of uh, asset classes, Right. So I can't invest in shares in the stock market because I've just never had that kind of money. If I can't use even more complex in instruments like derivatives or things like that, then I the only quote unquote asset that I have is the notes in my wallet and inflation will erode the value of that. And it will basically reduce my purchasing power, which makes things worse for me. If I have greater access to financial capital, then I can use a diverse range of products to kind of um, hedge, you know. So basically tying it to something concrete like gold is something, is something seen as desire. Uh, yeah. um, just, yeah, just to add on, I think the context of when he wrote that paper is also interesting because I think this was during the time when, uh, uh, like I think after some year Nixon, got out of the gold, like he put the dollar out of the gold standard. And also like the Weimar Republic, the German, like Germany had this big inflationary pressure going on and he was in Europe. So like context also like matters and there's a lot of debates going on. Should we like get away from gold? Because I think UK went and then got away and then came again and then went away finally. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of uh, interesting thing happened. And another thing like, you know, this asset class thing, um, like it's true, like you know, uh, you know, the inflation kind of you know destroys cash, but it benefits. Uh, sorry, I mean, but the idea of like having gold standard actually benefits a lot to the asset classes. So again, this is like a double kind of a thing where you know you're. I mean, the argument again, you know, you're protecting the people with cash, but also you're protecting the people with assets. So that's why there's a big uh, and then the whole. I mean, if people are aware of the more history of economics, where the because this uh, this pegging gold and you know when people got out of it the monetarists came and they're like we have to protect this and this this is going over we can't expand and this austerity idea also comes from that you know particular history so the I think yeah that kind of linking is interesting and in how it connects into this but I think yeah the context like it matters when he it mattered when he wrote that kind of argument the context around him what was going on he was you know he was in Europe like it was a different kind of time so I think yeah that's interesting. Okay. Um, Shristi's uh, question was, could you please touch upon the issue of levels of discrimination that exist in society? Does it agenda? Okay. Now, this is a fairly complex question to answer. Um, 
um, because per se, I mean, there is no, um, there is no, from what I understand, attempts to have a, a, an objective, quote unquote, objective um, way of measuring discrimination is, uh, um, is, 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 it's actually quite difficult. It's very difficult to come, come down with a, come down to, uh, to, to produce a sort of, I mean, index of discrimination, if you will, if you're looking for that kind of thing. Uh, so, um, and again, uh, I'm of course constrained by the fact that I myself have not uh, investigated this specific question in great detail. Um, so I think um, one thing that one thing that I am aware of, and this is largely from you know looking at Akerlof's economic economics of identity and all of that. Essentially, what you are basically saying is that if you look at it in a very individualist microeconomics kind of way, essentially um, the ident identity and discrimination based on identity is something that. Uh, essentially uh, reduces your expected utility over time. So that is one claim that is made. Uh, uh, um, but as far as to put it in the other way and to say that, okay, uh, there is a measure of discrimination. I myself am not too familiar with that literature. If anyone else knows, maybe you could chime in. Um, what we do understand at a, uh, um, what we do understand kind of from um, case studies that have been done is that um, caste, gender, um, religion in some cases uh, do tend to amplify um, the uh, lack of access that you might have to certain kinds of resources. In some cases, this is this is stuff that maybe kind of like be like legally mandated uh, for a very very long time. Um, um, a, if you uh, basically, what is the? I've forgotten that. I'm forgetting the name of the. There is an instrument that is used by. Uh, oh, it's called HUF, Hindu Undivided Families. Act. It's a. It is a way of kind of um, essentially saying that okay, this income is like living income. It is used for the expenditure of the household, kind of uh, thing, uh, and therefore the burden of taxation should be minimal on it because minimal or non-existent on it because essentially it is a kind of it is uh, what you're declaring that that income is used for subsistence right in in a certain kind of i'm not necessarily using the re legally correct terms but in principle that's what it's saying now for example uh, um, having access to an huf is of course something that has largely been exploited by people who belong to uh, the upper caste or who have traditionally been engaged in commerce mm. And even within this, though, you know, there were people, these ostensibly about people who belong to upper caste, there was an issue in the sense that uh, no woman could ever be the administrator. The word is karta. Uh, 
no woman could ever be the administrator of this thing so what we can sort of see is that uh, within a specific kind of codified system one of the things that may be kind of encoded is who has access or who is permitted so uh, i mean i suppose that's as best as an answer i can provide without me uh, having to read more but i will get i will try and I'll look into this a little bit more so maybe in the next session we can bring this up again uh samriti is asked could you also touch upon some distortions that may result in labor supply when caste identity affects one's concept of self and they tend to work in their caste occupations well okay uh, i suppose the thing that i could say about this is that uh, um essentially to be able to move beyond one's caste occupation right one requires capital of some kind right so mm, effectively what i'm trying to say is that if if you were uh, if you were i don't offspring of uh, some sort of landlord or something of the sort the land was something that essentially uh, generated financial capital and the financial capital could be employed for you to perhaps move out of being a landlord and in the case of some prominent academics in india become an academic uh no names shall be taken <laughs> but uh i think uh um when we are uh, kind of thinking about the cons well as far as the concept of self is concerned i am not again too well acquainted with um this um um uh, but uh, one thing is that basically discrimination is a, a when when we view discrimination as a constraint and particularly constraint to access the unfortunate thing that we are seeing is that access which requires capital of various kinds so if i mean if i if you want me to sort of be a uh, extremely productive contributing member of society i have to have access to education and sometimes more basic than education i mean a lot of the conversations about this have to do with you know having a, a proper meal in a day right so whole notion of the midday meal system is basically to like ensure this so you kind of will get that one meal two eggs maybe this is um, these are considerations that are like brought into uh, to kind of play so so if if a system really doesn't if a system does not exist to account for the fact that these things that perhaps we who are sitting here having this conversation are beyond thinking our kind of uh, uh, additions to one's capital stock right uh, well they they really are and i think the, those are things that have to be kind of kept in uh, um, kept in mind so if we are kind of trying to transcend our caste occupation one thing that roy points out is that you know we we because there may be no other opportunities because there may be no other mobility that is permitted for our caste group we may hold on very tightly to the kind of caste occupation that we have uh, especially if it's been institutionalized so if there is a government kind of uh, uh, 
government uh, employment for cleaners disproportionately people who belong to a caste of like uh, uh, people who like uh, i mean kind of compelled to like clean or clean up other people's waste will try and like corner that uh, because it ensures some sort of stability and it ensures some sort of uh, access to uh, wages it ensures that uh, it doesn't ensure but it uh, it means that there is scope for there is some scope for building uh, like a base of capital and then maybe maybe uh, some em emancipatory like stuff is possible uh, but without that, it of course is very difficult. I'm not entirely certain about the concept of self. Maybe others could kind of like touch upon that. Um, uh, in relation to concept of self, there is um, this thing called stereotype threat. So the social construction of categories can uh, of people can produce. It says, I mean, what it says is okay, the social con construction of categories of people can uh, produce behaviors that would not occur in the absence of the social constructions. So what it means is queuing a social identity that is stereotyped as say mentally deficient actually impairs, an, uh, impairs on, the, uh, on average the performance of um, the members of the group that is stereotyped. So maybe this affects the, the like, the the this uh, this consciously affects the um, the 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 concept of like what the concept of concept about the self for a person who belongs to a, to an underprivileged um, identity. Uh, okay, I'm. Uh, let's we uh, have a little bit of time, and maybe with that time we can touch upon this. Uh, mint piece uh, so the live mint piece is an interesting one because it uh, I, I chose it because it uh, it actually touches upon um, a recent piece of uh, legislation that has been enacted this was enacted in maharashtra and it was basically it's basically called the prohibition of people from social boycott act essentially what it uh, does is uh, in, in theory, what it's supposed to do is basically it is supposed to, um, it takes on the idea that, uh, what is that? Um, well, uh, like, like as we saw, you know, the discrimination takes the form of forced inclusion and also kind of like uh, forced exclusion. So this is something where forced exclusion is basically touched upon. One of the things that's interesting to note about this, and I think, I mean, I don't really want to like uh, spend too much time um, uh, focusing on individuals' narratives because I think that's something that we can kind of uh, uh, kind of extract from this ourselves. Uh, but I think one thing, there are a couple of things that in this recent piece of legislation that are common with other pieces of legislation that have been introduced in the past to kind of um, address concerns of caste-based discrimination. Now, uh, there's the Prevention of Atrocities Act also, I'm sure you know of that, uh, um, Scheduled Caste and Scheduled Tribes Prevention of Atrocities Act. That's something that, uh, 
Now, what these acts in principle try to do, uh, they are trying to essentially uh, um, criminalize the perpetuation of either social discrimination or atrocities. And what is unfortunately common in both of these pieces of legislation is the idea that uh, is the idea that in one at one point or the other within the system, um, there is a way in which um, things are undercut. For example, with this piece of legislation, it is relatively new, but uh, rules and standard operating procedures at the level of the police station have not been notified, which means that if you're trying to file an FIR claiming that I am uh, the victim of social boycott and you are kind of, uh, you, you want to sort of put down uh, the names of those who are perpetuating perpetrators, basically uh, this, uh, of this social boycott. It's difficult for you to do that because the police basically say that, yeah, we don't exactly have rules on how to uh, go about resolving this per se. So you go put down the FIR and then you try, you attempt to kind of uh, put it under this act. It becomes extremely difficult. As in the story of Mr. Umesh Rudrap, you see, of course, that the man, uh, um, the man had to sort of take some solace in the fact that essentially this thing was finally being documented under this act, that this kind of class of like, social actions that was that he was at the receiving end of was recognized it was recognized that this class of action was taking place even if um in a certain kind of way um he did not get exactly what he hoped to get the justice that he sought was not really available uh for him in the uh case of the well, well, right at the introduction of Arundhati Roy's uh, piece, where she talks of the Kerlanji kind of uh, um, a massacre, you see that at another level of uh, uh, of the system, which is essentially once it enters the courts, you don't find mention of the caste angle in the perpetuation of this atrocity. So on one hand, you don't have rules to even file the complaint. On the other hand, you have rules, but when the judge sees it, the judge is not willing to accept that it was a caste-based um, action. And essentially what you have as a result is this, you are in this unusual position, once again, where the what is supposed to be a recourse to justice becomes a sort of road to nowhere, really. Uh, uh, because in one way or another, it is kind of like thwarted. And I think this comes back to a point that Anshu was making a little bit earlier, um, that uh, essentially there is a, the, the social aspect to this cannot be forgotten. And part of the reason why it is important to kind of bring caste into the conversation uh, and for us to be... Uh, discussing caste, even if at a personal level this is something that we find challenging or makes us feel uncomfortable in certain kinds of ways. It is important for us to discuss because 
if we don't the conversation that we're having is one that is necessarily keeping certain voices out and that's a problem uh, it is uh, i mean ambedkar would tell you is really not democratic either um, um, and uh, i think that that i think is uh, i think something that we can maybe like take note of so if we think of this if you think of what we kind of addressed touched upon today um one the idea of uh, caste discrimination caste can sort of the idea that caste can be understood through the notion of a constraint one that's socially determined one that takes the form of one that produces a phenomenon of exclusion produces a phenomenon of uh, uh, discrimination we realize that we can kind of account for that even in the standard economic theory if we move away from standard economic theory then much like marx's method uh, when we uh, seek to kind of make uh, put our analysis in terms of uh, a recognition of like a historically discriminated group of individuals in this particular case dalits uh, we can uh, it leads us to interesting spaces in economic analysis and then as far as regulation or legislation is concerned which is one of the primary means through which uh, uh, the state can kind of intervene in these social practices i think there's a on on the one hand there is a need for uh, us to sort of like hold the state more accountable to the promises that it keeps and on the other hand there's a need to kind of like socially there's perhaps a need to kind of uh recognize that uh these conversations are important and that uh, we should be kind of um open to conversations around these so i think uh, as far as uh, the pieces that we were supposed to deal with a concern i think that's i suppose my presentation on this um maybe the if if you guys have any more questions or anything else that you want to say any comments anything that uh, yeah you think is interesting and that you want to share Uh, i just want to understand uh, like um whether we should focus our studies on like evolution of the system like the caste as a system how it happened throughout the time and like should we focus like and again uh, from that uh, by understanding that should we focus on the future and present of the caste rather than concentrating and learning about what happened in the past because uh, the today's questions are like mostly about um like uh, a kind of glorifying the customaries of certain groups as good and certain groups as bad like not eating beef or eating beef and like even in our societies in the mainstream there is no discussion even or mention of the word beef and it's kind of censored everywhere so like what's happening or in regarding uh, what what's happening in the future like what's happening currently is more important than what happened in the past uh, well uh, i suppose one thing that we could maybe consider is uh, the idea that um, i don't know the idea that uh, 
Yeah, but I suppose that's a that's in part a methodological question. So if we believe that there is a kind of the what we're studying in term, uh, what we're studying is something that we're studying right now, and we need to understand the phenomena right now. Um, then maybe the approach that like Thorat is talking about is a sort of better way, like identify how it's showing itself right now. Uh, but there are those who will say that this is a historically determined thing. And I'm not necessarily talking about Marxists. Uh, so if it is historically determined, then we will kind of have to understand this, like this evolution through time. And um, I think one thing that has one thing that is in, uh, slightly problematic is that, um, at, at least as far as anthropological accounts of this uh, are concerned, um, the dominant anthropological narratives that came out were basically coming from uh, upper caste sociologists who themselves were imposing certain kind of biases into the writing of. Uh, the, the system, the, how these systems function, and essentially came up with what we now thankfully uh, understand are uh, not very good takes on how this works. So I think it's a combination of two things because you know, like uh, for example, if, you know, if you are dealing with a, if you are trying to understand a thing about a, a problem of a community that has historically always been in one place, right? And there hasn't been any sort of geographic mobility. Then methodologically, it would make more sense to take that historically determined, historical deterministic approach. Whereas, uh, because that might explain what's happening now better. But if we're looking at, uh, as uh, Muskan pointed out, we're looking at uh, what's happening in a corporate sector, Silicon Valley kind of setting then historical determinism really isn't so much the thing. We kind of, uh, I mean, it may play a role, definitely, but we kind of need to analyze the phenomena more in terms of the present and things like that, yeah. So I think 